0: Christian participation in politics should not be so driven by the issues that we become incapable of adapting to become, quote, all things to all people, that by all means, we might save some, 1 Corinthians 9.22. As the Apostle Paul interacts with various groups inside and outside the community of faith, he adjusts the way that he relates to those he's addressing. Paul doesn't compromise the convictions or scratch the itching ears of his audience. But he speaks the language of those who he's talking to. He doesn't convey the truth without considering how his speech and actions will be received.
1: Hello, I'm Richard Beatty, and that's Dr. James Spencer. You're listening to Thinking Christian, and today James is talking about how Christians should think about politics. James, we always hear about the dangers of being all things to all people. It never works. And although we have some dilution of language going on in our culture. So did Paul during his time. How did Paul handle it when writing to Timothy?
0: Well, first I'll say, you know, our problem is never with being all things to all people. Our problem is always with trying to please everyone. Pleasing everyone never works. And that's not really what Paul's trying to do. And so when we look at what Paul's really doing, he's trying to be adaptable. He's trying to use the language that people will understand and resonate with. And so that doesn't mean that he can't use challenging language. You know, he he talks to the foolish Galatians, for instance. He's not always gentle, uh, but being all things to all people isn't about being nice or agreeable. It is about learning to proclaim the truth in word and deed in ways that others will just understand that they'll be compelled by, that they may resonate with. And, you know, in today's language, what we say is that Paul is really just trying to read the room. He, he's, uh, he's trying to understand where he is, who he's talking to and deliver a message that will change the way his audience thinks about the world around them. And so, you know, for better or worse nowadays, our room is just really big. Uh, social media, the internet, all the different digital technologies we have. Uh, mass communication systems these things make it much more difficult us to adapt our message to a specific audience because our audience is almost always mixed and so Paul doesn't have you know that sort of mass communication problem. I mean he's sending letters that do get recycled and sent to other churches, but by and large, he can anticipate who he's talking to, where that message will go, how it will be received and and really have a deep understanding of what other people are thinking, adapt to that environment. And so to some degree, in my mind, what we probably need to do as Christians is to try to make our rooms just a bit smaller.
1: Yeah, Paul didn't have uh, email or MailChimp or anything else. Uh, s- someone had to read out these letters, and they had to read these out loud. So... How do we narrow uh, and is it really narrowing the audience or is it just uh, maybe speaking to, to smaller audiences uh, more often? Uh, and, and does that actually, will that actually have more impact and can it be done?
0: Well, here's the way I think about it. Um, you know, obviously we're putting a podcast out, we're putting a broadcast out. Right? Uh, broadcasting by its very nature is going to hit a mixed audience. And so there's a different way that I would present things on a podcast or broadcast than I would in a more intimate setting. You know, when I talk to my wife, uh, we have much more candid conversations about things and I'm free to sort of experiment with my opinions and to think through different issues. You know, you and I have offline conversations where both of us do that. And there there is something a little bit more comfortable and a little bit safer. We can be a little bit more. Um, maybe polarized in our opinions, or test out ideas in smaller settings. But I think when Christians are interacting on, you know, sort of a bigger global type stage, where we're pretty sure that the messages that, you know, that what we're saying or what we're writing is going to get out there to a broader public, I think we have a responsibility to make sure that what we're saying and, and what we're writing is as nuanced as possible. And, uh, and really trying to help people understand where we're coming from, as opposed to just putting out sort of a, an extremely polarized or opinionated message that may be less well informed than it needs to be. And so, you know, one of the examples that I've come across, uh, recently, um, is related to, you know, the, the GOP debate. And there was an article in a recent Rolling Stone, um, it's written by a, a gentleman named Tim Dickinson. And he highlights a a pastor's comments or objections against uh, the uh, Republican candidate, Vivek Ramaswamy. I think I'm saying that right. Um, Ramaswamy is a practicing Hindu, and uh, Kuhnman did not feel that a practicing Hindu would—evidently, Kuhnman didn't feel— that a practicing Hindu would make a particularly good president. He feels that um, we need somebody in there who is serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, that kind of a comment raises a lot of different questions. (laughs) You know, um, have all of our other presidents somehow been serving Jesus Christ? Uh, You know, just because they don't, they aren't adherents to another religion, do we really want to use the language of serving Jesus Christ with all of our previous presidents i'm not sure that we do but that's a conversation that we could probably have now you know i think there's probably ways for Kuhnman to have you know voiced this issue um and voiced in his concern in a way that wouldn't have been quite so polarizing but he chose to communicate it like this and i would arguably it is a uh it is not the most adaptable way he could have said this, so I think overall, what I would argue is that um, as we are putting out these different kinds of messages, particularly as we go into this political season, um, I would say just emphasize that, particularly as we go into this political season, Christians do need to be careful our our country is more polarized than it has been in a really long time. I won't say ever. But you know, we did have the civil war, uh, but it's it's more polarized than it's been in a very long time, which means that as we side with one candidate or another, or as we speak out for one party or another, we are almost guaranteed to alienate the other side and so I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't have a particular perspective on politics. I have my own personal politics i I think about politics in a very particular way. And, uh, you know, I have my own convictions about the various policies and issues that are you know sort of hot topics in America today. And so I don't think that we shouldn't participate in politics. What I wonder is whether we should participate as publicly as we are currently, given how polarized things are. And given that, we are highly likely to alienate another portion of that audience. I would much prefer us, and and I don't know that I have an answer for that. What I would prefer is to say, let's think it through from the perspective of, can we be all things to all people that by all means we might save some? If we can speak into that political realm and still be all things to all people. I think that that is a great thing to do. But to the extent that we just are going to lose people, that we're basically saying we don't care if they're ever saved. We have to say this, and it doesn't matter how they take it. It doesn't matter how they feel about it. It doesn't matter whether we alienate them. I question whether that is the wisest course for Christians to take.
1: Yeah, it seems like, <clears throat> there's been a lot of cases, uh, especially in the debate stages and, and there's there's a lot of biblical quote quotation I wondered um when I was listening uh if if it was if that's purposeful contextual confusion or is it even deeper or maybe a, a little more cynical than that
0: you know i mean I think it's a mix of different problems that we're dealing with you know obviously there are points at which you know we could point to the so-called liberal media for mischaracterizing um christian perspectives and christianity and obviously there's a selection bias there (laughs) right um you know there's a reason that uh tim dickinson highlights these comment comments from kuhnman and it's so that he can point out that Listen, Christians are really just Republicans in a different guise and that uh, many Christians do want a more fundamentalist biblical structure or strictures, as he calls them, fundamentalist biblical strictures on the country. Um, and they're they're You know, we're really just trying to reclaim the country for Christianity as opposed to letting it sink into secularism. You know, and so by selecting Kuhnman's comments, he can make that point. Now, what's almost always ignored is that there are probably millions of Christians who do not support this notion um, that could put out. There's probably millions of Christians who are far more careful with their language. And there are probably millions of Christians who still have political convictions and are going to go to the polls and vote their conscience on, you know, Election Day. There's not a sense in which we're trying to steal anything. We are part of a representative democracy. And as such, we have the right to participate. So I think there's that aspect of it going on. I think that we are caught in this sort of interesting matrix where people tend to view this as there are always these little shadow agendas that people are always involved with. And by lumping us into a group of Christians um and and you know, you say it with a an evil tone, right? Like we're all sitting around twisting our mustaches and petting our cats. Right? These Christians are trying to do something evil in the country. But it's probably not. Right? The presentation in the media can be biased simply by selection. It doesn't have to be a, a particularly liberal slant. It's just what you choose to report on. So I, I think there is that aspect. I think the other side of it though is, is that we're, we're in a situation right now where our data is more transparent than it has ever been. And so whenever we go to the polls and we're, you know, our biodemographic data identifies us as evangelicals or Christians or mainline Protestants or what have you. Well, those statistics get out there. And so if you think back to this last election with Trump, you know, there was a lot of Information out there, whether it was presented accurately or not, I won't get into. But uh, there was a lot. There were a lot of statistics out there that demonstrated that Christians voted for Trump in X percent of the time. And you know, I think we just need to be careful about how we're identifying ourselves, how we're you know, in a new environment where these kind, this kind of information is particularly pertinent and going to get out there. We just need to be more careful about how we conduct ourselves. There's there's just a lot of challenges right now as we seek to participate in the political realm. And I think one of those is there's a really interesting sociological study that demonstrates that you know, countries where Christianity appears to be, or people perceive it to be, or it actually is. Uh, Supported by the state or privileged by the state, Christianity tends not to grow well in those countries. And so I I think that in America, what we're seeing is this convergence of multiple factors of data being available of some media bias, you know, and, and by that, I don't mean, um, you know, some horrible conspiracy theory where the media is, you know, colluding against us, but just a, a general notion that a lot of people in the media don't want the country to move back toward what it was, whereas a lot of Christians do. And so, you know, you've got this bias in the media, and then you've also got this perception, and it's a perception that has been growing over the last few years of, you know, Christian nationalism um, and this notion that um, Christians want to return to a Christian nation, and that really creating a perception of the church that. Probably isn't warranted in a lot of respects and certainly isn't helpful to proclaiming the gospel
1: well, uh two things came to mind: I just thought about how. How Christians became Christians, how we got our name, uh, and, you know, the Romans calling us in the exact same way that you talked about that, oh, there are the Christians, you know, and, and, and that kind of thing. And then the second thing I wondered, um, how is this all playing out, uh, especially with, uh, the younger generation and, uh, and Christians in the younger generation in, in Christian education and colleges, uh, and how is that going to play out with future generations?
0: You know, when I when I was an academic dean, one of the things that uh, occurred while I was sort of serving in an academic role was the legalization of gay marriage. And there were a number of students on campus um, who Christian students who were. I don't want to say celebrating that decision, but had been supportive of that decision for a while, that they just felt that, um, you know, homosexuals should be able to get married um, in the same way that heterosexuals can get married. And as we reflected on that as an academic unit, as a faculty, uh, one of the things that I said was, I I don't get the sense that the students, and I I still don't believe at the time, that the students were, you know, quote unquote, going liberal. I, I think what they were struggling to understand was the relationship between the church and the state. And I think that they were struggling to understand, you know, what trumped what, how it all worked, um, how these two entities fit together, uh, why could it not be uh, prohibited within the church but permissible for the state, those kind of conversations. And I think that that question has largely gone unanswered. You know, there's a lot of political theology out there right now. There's a lot of, of post-liberal theology out there right now that addresses these issues in great depth. And there isn't a, 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 a widespread agreement necessarily on how the church should interact with the government. And so even within academic circles and scholarly circles of people who study this, um, these are difficult issues to navigate. And so I don't want to pretend to give the final word on this, but what I would say is that as we look at the younger generations of Christians, the the kids who are in high school are going to be entering college or who are already in college. I, I think one of the important things that we need to emphasize with them is that Christians are always Christians first, that the church is the, uh, primary vehicle of displaying God's glory in the world and that the political realm is really a secondary witness. In other words, the political realm, to the extent that it aligns with and conforms to God's order, is it reflects God's order. It just does. Um, God appoints the political order. He uses the political order. It has a, a particular function. And yes, those two Uh, realms sort of interact and overlap, but the reality is that the church, the, the body of Christ, those who have accepted Jesus as Lord and who proclaim Jesus as Lord, we are the primary witness, and that is our primary responsibility. And so part of what I think we need to do with the younger generation is be far more emphatic about the importance of discipleship and far less emphatic about the importance of the next election.
1: Well, James, as I, I like to say, we can't be all things to all people. Uh, and, you know, we've kind of gone around that a little bit. So how do we communicate the one thing all people need without offending some?
0: Yeah. It's really difficult. Um, I think particularly now, I'm sure that I've said a few things, even in these last uh, few moments, that may frustrate people. Um. And so I don't know whether it is fully possible for us to be all things to all people that by all means, we may save some in today's world, that level of adaptability may just escape us, particularly when we're talking about social media, particularly when we're talking about, you know, the internet and the distribution of content through mass media. But I I will say this. um, It's, Being all things to all people is not about avoiding confrontation. It's not about avoiding conflict. It's not about stepping away from the issues and not addressing or speaking the truth. I think a lot of it has to do with the manner in which we're doing that. And a lot of it has to do with our priority and motivation in doing that. So. If we believe that the eternal life of our neighbor is more important than who than you know, one political policy or another or one social or cultural issue or another or what have you, I believe that we will address these issues in a way that is different than we've been doing thus far. You know, I have a lot of difficulties. Uh, believing that snarky memes shared on the internet or, you know, calling the people in authority, uh, stupid or fools or, you know, those kind of things. Some of the, um, how would I say it? Inappropriate language used to describe our public figures. And I don't really care what party they're from. These are people that we're supposed to be praying for. These are people that we are supposed to be supporting in prayer. Yeah, we can critique them. We can critique their decisions. But why would we do that using phrases like stupid or idiot or, um, you, know, you know, language that is just incommensurate with Christian life? I think that when we really do truly value the eternal life of our neighbor, we will take pains to express the truth. In a way that is not offensive, even if other people take offense to it, but I think sometimes we are trying way too hard to be offensive and, and just being fine with it. We're fine if people just get knocked off and and you know sort of um, pushed away from the church uh, because we're speaking the truth, and I would argue that part of speaking the truth is speaking the truth in a manner that reflects a conviction that we are to be all things to all people, that by all means we might save some.
1: Speaking the truth in love, and that's uh, one thing uh, we don't hear a lot about. And, um, you know, the truth gets very, very much blunted if, uh, if, if, we, if, we, if we speak it in any other way.
0: That's right. I, I just, you know, we've we've gotten into this situation where we begin to view those who have opposing views or those who belong to different groups or those who are somehow opposed to us as Christians. We begin to view them as our enemies, our opposition. And even as we do that, even as I say, we view them as our enemy. Christ told us to love our enemy. And so we really have no excuse. We need to be loving our enemy. And why is that? It's because we live in a world with a lot of neighbors. And our neighbors do need to hear the truth. I understand that. And I affirm it. I agree. Yeah, I agree with it 100%. But at the same time, part of that truth is that we don't need to be defensive about where we stand. God is in control. God is sovereign. Um, we believe that we belong to an unshakable kingdom. You know, we we don't need to react or be fearful or even get angry uh, because at the end of the day, you know, we know where we're going. We know how this ends and we're trying to take as many people with us as possible. And so speaking the truth in love, I think is crucial to that. It's a, it's a matter of proclaiming the gospel. And again, I'm not advocating for soft language. Like I said, Paul was not, Always gentle. I mean, there's a point in Galatians where he says that he wishes the people who are teaching circumcision in addition to faith would mutilate themselves. He is not always gentle. At the same time, I'm not suggesting we be gentle. I am suggesting that we be wise and that we filter our speech through that grid of being all things to all people.
1: Well, you can be kind and uh and, and not be so gentle, huh?
0: <laughs> That's right. I, I think there's I have been firm many times in my life. I've been truthful and blunt with people when they've asked me questions. And um, you know, honestly, it, it at certain points in my career, it earned me, you know, titles like "Ruthless and Brutal." And I think that part of that was earned. And I I have to own that. I was too blunt. I was too honest. And I wasn't quick enough to listen to the people that were sitting across the table from me and willing to really think it through before I gave them an answer that maybe they would have found at least more palatable, even if they disagreed with me. But I didn't always have that in me. And I, and I think, you know, those kind of experiences, as I look back on, they're regrettable statements. They're things that I hope I have learned my lesson on and do less and less. Because at the end of the day, the way we interact with people, the way we speak to people, the way we um, ask questions, the way we you know make statements, they matter. We're representing Jesus. And so I am not a soft person. Uh, I'm still pretty blunt. I'm still really honest, but I will say that I'm much slower to share my opinion now. And I'm much slower to, um, just automatically jump into a conversation and, and, and spout some truth. I really do try to pick my opening. And, um, if it helps, I, you know, one of the, one of the things that I've kind of thought through is, you know, the sweet science of boxing, (laughs) right? conversation is not just a brawl where you jump in and just flail about hoping you hit something. It's a strategy. And you know as we hop in the ring and we're we're having those conversations with folks, we need to keep our wits about it and make sure that we are landing the punches that we throw, so to speak.
1: So um, how do we engage uh, in the culture and especially uh, whether it's through politics or in politics, How do we how do we now engage in these in these arenas, which are sometimes pretty brutal?
0: I I think one way that Christians need to be engaging in politics is sort of as a silent partner. At this point, with the polarized environment, there's just there are very few people that I would share my own political views with. And when I do that, I generally do that in private. Now, I'll speak out on particular issues on occasion. You know, I've written things on uh, abortion, for instance, after the Dobbs-Jackson decision. You know, obviously, I'm, uh, you know, out there talking about artificial intelligence and what I think needs to be done there. So I'm not shy about sharing my opinion and, um, and having a discourse with people. I think the challenge with politics right now is not that we would we would necessarily say something that's just going to uh, offend everyone, but that it's very difficult to say anything right now. About politics without offending someone. And so there's part of me that just feels like, listen, we, we can influence the, the nation if we want. We can, we can vote our conscience. We can go to the polls and, and do our thing, but there's really no need for us to throw our backing behind any particular candidate. I don't see that it's helping us accomplish what we are supposed to be doing as a primary action, which is building the kingdom of God. Certainly, I see the way that, you know, supporting a particular candidate publicly can help to advance certain political aims and, and help to alleviate some of the pressures that maybe we're feeling from a cultural perspective. That is not our primary aim. Whatever it is that we do, right, whether people stay silent, whether they choose to speak up, um, whether they choose to participate or not, you know, participate beyond voting or not, what I would say is, how am I adapting in this situation? Is my approach in the spirit? of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5.